For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weaknesses and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, 
which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you would, let's, let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. There's a lot here, and we've got to do some work. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us, that by your Spirit we would come to your Word with open hearts, open minds, that we would learn what you have to teach us, that we would become who you've called us to be, that we would believe what our spirits need to believe in this moment. Uh, and I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There's a lot in here. And when we started Hebrews, I, was, I told you I was really excited about going through Hebrews because I'm really excited about the notion of learning how the actual, like, the writers of Scripture use the Scripture. And this is actually a really interesting case study in how to read the Bible and how to let Scripture interpret Scripture and how to come out on the other side of that. But in order to do that, I don't want to start with the author of Hebrews. I want us to start with David. And I want us to consider David's life for a second. David, from being a child, I believe, had a sense that the Lord was calling him to something. He was a shepherd boy, like his brothers. He longed to do something for his family, for his country, for the Lord. Uh, he not only was he a shepherd, he was a musician uh, and and he had like he had heart. Like think about like Rudy. Right. David's the youngest. He's kind of the smallest. When it's time to go to battle, they come to his family. When I say Rudy, if you're not following me, <laughs> I mean the movie Rudy. Like there's a lot of Rudy's that have been meaningful in my life. And I'm not talking about Huxtable. I'm talking about the football playing Hobbit, Rudy. Um, <laughs> the underdog, the little guy. There's time for battle and the general comes, right? We need troops, we need soldiers for battle and all of his brothers get chosen except for David. Uh, and there's a lot of time to write songs when you're tending sheep while your brothers are off at war. Then eventually David becomes anointed by Samuel to be the next king. And all in between having slayed a giant, uh, having become best friends with the king's brother, having become sort of like the... I saw a really weird headline about personal pastor to the president. We're not going to go into that uh, about like what is a personal pastor. But in this case, we have like personal liturgist to the king. Like he wrote music for the king. He was like Saul's like Hillsong on demand at all times. <laughs> and he wrote and, and they're recorded in scripture. And, and then there comes this point where David is, is hated by Saul and he's on the run. And he's hiding in caves, which is an age-old tactic, apparently. And, and in the midst of this, the Lord is ministering to him. And he's hearing from the Lord, and he's writing these psalms. And he's running, and he's hoping. And he gets called a man after God's own heart. 
David, David had this, has this like really interesting connection with God. And then finally he does become king. And as king, David, David still wants this connection that he has with God to be a blessing to the country. And so, I mean, I mean, think about this for a second. Like one of David's passions and obsessions as king is to build a temple for the Lord. Right. So like if you know your your Bible history, if you know your uh, history of Israel, you know, David doesn't build the temple. His son Solomon does. But that project, that idea to build a temple that starts with David. David wants to build a temple. He tells the prophet Nathan, the same prophet who called him out when he was in sin, that prophet, he tells him, I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan's like, that's a great idea. And then Nathan goes and he's in his quiet times. He's in his devotion, right? And the Lord says, no, that's not right. David's not going to do that. And so Nathan now has to go back to David, the king, and say, actually, it's not for you to build a house for the Lord to dwell in. But think about it. Why does David want to build God? Like, why in that moment is David so set on this is what I want to do? Well, if you were in the narrative, what had just happened before is that the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites, which is a huge offense. And beyond a huge offense, it's dangerous for the Israelites because the Ark of the Covenant represented and was the physical manifestation of the presence of God with them, God with them. Their blessing, their security, their their victory, it came from the fact that God was with them and now that was gone. Like this isn't just like, this isn't like two rival colleges, right? Like stealing each other's mascots. This is the Philistines knowingly stealing the representation of God, the Israelites. It's like the ultimate victory in the ancient Near East. And so the Israelites, they, they, they battle and they take back the ark and they're, they've won and they're bringing the ark back. And David is watching this parade, right? I'm going to talk a lot about parades. And, and I mean, we, a World Series, guys, like a World <laughs> Series, right? Um, and there's a parade and they're marching the ark back. And, <clears throat> and one of the animals that's helping to carry the ark because humans are not supposed to touch it. Uh, stumbles and the ark is about to fall. And if it falls and touches the ground, or like hits the ground, it's, it's going to be damaged. And a man named uh, Uzzah, he sees that the ark is about to fall and he steadies it. And do you know what happens? He steadies the ark. And God kills him. He dies. On the spot. He touches that which is holy. He defames it and God kills him. So now I want you to think about David for a second. David, king of the Israelites. David, the one who's close to God's heart, after God's heart. David, the one who wants God's presence and wants to see God's presence among his people. David, who, in, who is so 
concerned with the presence of God among the people that he actually goes into a really bad, like lopsided battle and wins in order to recover the ark. David now sees that this is what the scripture says. David realizes that the ark cannot come into his house because he's not a priest. All right. So I'm going to move from what the scripture says to a little bit of like analysis of David's mind. And, and I'm just telling you, like, I don't know if this is what happens next, but I can see it happening. David wants the Ark of the Covenant close to him and close to the people. David realizes he can't do it because he's not a priest. He's only. Can you imagine thinking that? Like, I'm only a king. But the thing we need most is the presence of God. I'm only a king. I can't build a temple because God has said no. How? And David sits down and he begins to recount the stories that he's told. I would say he opens up his Bible, but we know that, that that's not how it worked then. Right? There were scrolls. They were in specific places. So he's recounting the stories that he's told. And he recounts this story of Abraham in Genesis 14. Do you guys know the story of Abraham in Genesis 14? Lot has been kidnapped. Lot's nephew has been kidnapped by the king of Ketileomer. Right? So now we've gone from like David's reign to like really just sort of uh, barbaric institutions, right? <clears throat> we don't have like entire kingdoms and united family groups that are uh, nation states at this point. We've got like tribes and nomads that are wandering and they're killing each other. And one of Abraham's tribe, his nephew Lot, has been kidnapped. And, and this is an affront because it's family. Like think about it. Think about how... How much frustration, anger, fear, concern, all of the things that would be running through Abraham's mind, uh, Abraham's uh, family's mind. And so Abraham needs to get, get back Lot. And, <clears throat> and so there's this weird sort of like treaties and, and grouping that forms. And, and so Ketileomer gets his people. Abraham gets his people, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in Genesis 13, they go to battle to get back Lot and they win. That is the backdrop to the scripture that uh, I believe Rebecca read. Right? Genesis 14. That's the backdrop to it. They've been in battle. This, we're, we're, you're like, where's this going? We're, we're coming to it here. They rescue Lot. And I'm not going to read you all of the story about how they do it. But I want you to... to, to to read this, uh, it says, after his return from the defeat of Ketileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham in the valley of Shaveh. That means the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So there are some, there are some, uh, prisoners of war and Sodom wants them because they become his servants, his people, his slaves. And he says to Abram, but you, you take all the money, all the goods. You have the rest of it. 
And Abram says, no, I can't do that. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take anything that is yours, lest you say that I made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and share the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamer take their share. All right? That story makes sense, right? So if you've been reading this whole story, what you have are the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, Abram. They go to battle. Afterwards, they're talking about how to dig the spoils up. That makes sense. Here's the thing. That's actually not the scriptures. Like it is, but I've actually cut out text. And I, I did that intentionally so that you could see like what happens in the middle of it makes no sense. Because in the middle of that story, you get this. After the return from the defeat of Ketelaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went to meet him, Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. All right, so like, let's stop for a second. In the middle of this story that makes sense, like think about this as, as a story and, and like in storytelling. So I'm telling you a story. I've introduced all the characters. I've given you uh, the plot. I've given you the climax. I'm giving you now the, the sort of the, the falling action and the, the, the ending, the denouement, right? Like I'm giving you the end of the story. We're wrapping up the story. And then in the middle of wrapping up the story, I introduce a character that has never been mentioned before. Like that's not good storytelling. That's strange. And honestly, like it doesn't advance the plot at all. Right? All of a sudden, out of nowhere comes Melchizedek, king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed them and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high. And I imagine for a second, David reading this story. Saying like, why is Melchizedek in there? I, David's been wondering this. <laughs> Right, like you ever get in those stories, you ever see a movie or read a book and you're like trying to figure out like what was the point of that? And like it dawns on David. Melchizedek comes to represent something that David wants. Something that David understands that is needed. And David by the Holy Spirit now starts to write about Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Melchizedek is what David can't be. He's king and priest. And David has seen all the promises of God and he knows that in order for the promises of God to like make sense in his mind, at some point something's going to have to happen where the one who is king is also priest. And so he writes Psalm 110. He writes in that moment, Psalm 110, and he says, you've sworn an oath from the beginning and you will not forsake it. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so David writes this psalm. And now here's why it's important is because David does something that honestly, like if you did, I'd be like, that's really not how you should interpret the scripture. (laughs) That happens all the time. He takes like a little chunk and he expounds on it, but really not that much. It's remarkable to me that the author of Hebrews gives us now a full chapter, including some allusions to in earlier chapters on Melchizedek, when Melchizedek is mentioned twice beforehand in scripture for a total of, even though they didn't have verses, for us thinking of verses, for a total of four verses. Think about how much is in the Old Testament. 
And we get four verses that even mention Melchizedek. And it's crucial. And so what I want us to do for for the, the time that we have, in setting that all up and seeing how David read the scripture and how the scripture was used, I think, both like in a very natural way, like it ministered to David. Listen, like scripture ministers to you. But then in this other odd way where actually that was the Holy Spirit working out so that David was saying something that was utterly true to David in the moment. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit was saying something that would be remarkably prophetic. Like the scriptures, God's word is this really natural occurring thing. It's written by people out of their experience, which means as people with experiences, we can actually relate to it. And at the same time, it's God telling us something about who he is and what he's going to do. Or in our case, what he has done. So who is Melchizedek? I've already told you, like, this is a really strange character to come out of the blue. And, uh, <clears throat> and the author of Hebrews catches that. thinks so as well. And he says this, Melchizedek was king of Salem, priest of Most High God. He's not saying anything the scriptures haven't said. And he met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tithe. A tenth of everything that he had. Right. So now this is strange already and we'll get there. But but he he's he's setting up the narrative to show you that Melchizedek actually becomes the most important and the most prominent and the greatest character in that story, even though he just shows up for a minute. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's Melchizedek. Right? Melchizedek literally means that. Like king and righteous. Like he's the righteous king. He's the king of righteousness. That's who he is. And you can see what the author of Hebrews is doing here already. Like that's Jesus. The king of righteousness. Not only that, he is the king of Salem. That is peace. Salem, like Salem Another way that shalom, like these words, like it means peace. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. And it says he's without genealogy, father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is an interesting way of reading the scripture and understanding how stories were told. Because if you read Genesis, really the Old Testament, every character that's prominent, like every character that matters, that's on the Lord's side, has genealogy surrounding him. Think about Abram. Like, we get Noah, then we get genealogy, then Abraham. Isaac. We know Isaac's genealogy because he's the son of Abraham, Jacob. Right? And then you get what? Genealogy and then David. You know, and Solomon. And what do you get in the beginning of Matthew? Genealogy all the way up to Jesus. It is unusual in the way that they would tell stories, in the way that they would relay historical narrative. It is unusual for somebody that prominent to be a priest of the Lord and to matter that significantly and to not have a genealogy. 
And so the author of Hebrews recognizes that the reason there's no genealogy here, the reason we don't hear about his birth or his death, is because there's something about Melchizedek that's meant to be conveyed as everlasting. Melchizedek is everlasting. Now, if you are really Western and you're going to ask really Western questions, like chances are Melchizedek had a mother and a father. He was obviously born, probably died, but that's how Westerners read stories. And sometimes, and we have to like be, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to like shake it too much, but sometimes you have to realize that even our hermeneutics have been colonized. And that there's like a Western Enlightenment bent to it. And that we don't read text the way that the original recipients did. And so for them, they're not asking, well, where's his mom and his dad? Was he a historical figure? Like they're just assuming and they're seeing these, these things. And, and they're saying that's not the point. The point is he appears out of nowhere. He disappears and they're... they're <laughs> He's just, it's such a funny, it's such a funny way of writing. So they all return. This person who's not been mentioned once is just there. And Melchizedek broke out bread and wine. Like, and I get it. Like, he, he brought bread and wine to the party. He was thinking, like, he's, he, not all heroes wear capes. And here he is. We'll talk about him. But then there's no, like, and then Melchizedek left. The story just goes on. Like, it's strange. It's strange. He just shows up. He just disappears. And it's like he's resembling the Son of God, a priest forever. All right? So who's Melchizedek? He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's an everlasting priest of God most high. And he's a critical character in the life and the story of Abraham. He's greater than Abraham to the point that Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he has. Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. You can read more about that in, in the rest of Hebrews 7. I, I, I can't go into all these specifics. We see that Abraham is greater, or Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham, which means he's greater than Levi. That's who he is. He is a priest, and he's not born of Levi. He's not born of Aaron at all. What does he do? He blesses Abraham. He actually speaks a blessing over him. He speaks a blessing into Abraham's life. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has given your enemies into your hands. He gives Abraham a blessing from God and then extols God to Abraham. And he brings bread and wine. He brings gift and blessing. This is what he does, all right? So really quickly, because I know we're, we're in the weeds here. Like this is hermeneutics. And this isn't even hermeneutics 201 or 101. It's like, this is hermeneutics like 326, right? Like this is, this is, this is 
a lot. But the author of Hebrews really focuses, like the whole, the whole book is going to now pivot in the way that it's written because of Melchizedek. So we have to, we have to grapple with that. Okay, so that's who Melchizedek is. What does he have to do with Jesus? Well, we've already begun to see that Jesus is a lot like Melchizedek, or in, in another way of saying this is Melchizedek becomes a type of Jesus, right? We've talked about types and how uh, Moses was a type of Jesus. <laughs> Moses was a prophet, priest, and a king who delivered his people out of slavery. Just like Jesus, the prophet, priest, king, delivers us out of slavery and bondage and spiritual uh spiritual death. Uh, Joshua was a type for Jesus. He delivered uh, God's people out of the wilderness into the promised land, just like Jesus, who is greater than Moses and Joshua, leads us both out of slavery and into freedom and will lead us into the promise. Melchizedek is a type of Jesus. And to the extent that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, just like David said. You are a priest forever in the order, after the order of Melchizedek. Now I want you to hear that language for a second. After the order of. Right, there were orders of priests, but also those orders in, in Israelite life, and Hebrew life was by line. And so you would actually have been, he's a high priest in the line of Aaron. He's a priest in the line of Levi, right? Because descendants and lineage matters. But here he says, after the order of, or in the order of, Jesus is not descended from Melchizedek. We already know that to be the case. We know his lineage. He's in the tribe of Judah. We have a genealogy both in Matthew and in Luke. That tell us where Jesus came from. He's not a child of Melchizedek. He's a priest in the likeness and the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest forever of Most High God, just as Melchizedek was. Jesus is the King of Righteousness. He's the King of Priests, the Prince of Peace. He is not resembling the Son of God, He is the Son of God. And He is a priest forever. Right? So Jesus is like Melchizedek in who Melchizedek is, but Jesus is also like Melchizedek in what Melchizedek does. Jesus blesses us. You are blessed by Jesus. Do you know that? Have you considered the blessings that you have in the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus speaks over you grace and mercy. The Lord Jesus speaks over you forever, sonship and adoption. You are sons and daughters of God Most High, and Jesus speaks that to you. The Lord Jesus speaks over you peace and comfort. And then not only that, provides you with this Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus blesses you. But then the author of Hebrews goes even more into the blessings of it, right? He says that, that Jesus now is in the order of Melchizedek, and he is able then to have a, 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 a priesthood by which we can attain perfection. So we have now in Lord Jesus this gift, this blessing, the blessing of a covenant and a priesthood by which we will be sanctified until that time when sin and brokenness is removed from us altogether and we are glorified with Christ. That's a blessing. This new covenant comes, it says, with the new law. So it's necessary that when, this the scriptures say, the author of Hebrews says, it's necessary that when there is a new covenant, when there is a new priesthood, there is also a new 
law. That's verse 12. And this priesthood, this this new covenant that Jesus brings, brings a new law. And consider the law of Jesus. Love. Love God. (coughs) Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Faith. That... It's ultimately the law. It's not, it's not a covenant of works. It's a covenant of grace. It's no longer about, not that it ever was, but even ostensibly, it's no longer about what you do. We say this again and again, and it's because I want you to hear it. I want it to set into your soul and to change your life. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that you can fail to do. That will make you any more or any less loved and accepted by God than you are right now in Jesus Christ. Does that mean we get to do whatever we want? By no means is what Paul says. But what it means is that you are not defined by your greatest mistakes, but rather by the greatest victory of Jesus Christ. Or as Tim Keller says, it's not even the strength of your faith that saves, it's the object. Jesus, you have been saved. You will be saved. Nothing can change that if you are in Jesus. It's a new covenant. It's a new law. And these now all of a sudden have the ability to do something the old covenant in and of itself could not. The law could change your behavior. It could modify your behavior. But it couldn't change your behavior. Now, by the power of Jesus, you have what you need more. See, a changed heart behaves rightly. But you can do the right things with a hard heart. We see it all the time. Maybe you feel it. I'm doing the right things, and I don't love God at all. That doesn't save. It doesn't lead to perfection. A changed heart does. And then beyond that, Jesus' blessing now does what the old priesthood couldn't do. It's effective forever. Jesus is a priest forever, interceding forever, at the right hand of God forever, because he was perfect, and therefore he did not need sacrifices for himself. We talked about that like three weeks ago. He, his death led to the death of death, and he is resurrected. Jesus is the perfect, everlasting priest, constantly at God's side, making intercessions on our behalf. Like, that, that, the comfort and the hope and the joy and the peace that that should bring you is beyond measure. Because that means that right now, like, think about, like, Yom Kippur was just celebrated a few weeks ago, right? Uh, I don't, time is moving so fast that it could have been, like, two months ago. And I'm going, <laughs> right? But it feels like it was, like, last week, right? <clears throat> but think about the fact that for a year, you were living with the weight of your sin over you without, like, there were special sacrifices and, and whatnot. But, like... It, 
there's this weird sense in which if you sinned and on your way to make sacrifice for your sin, you died, you died in your sin. Like that's, that's crazy. Like, and that's not how it worked because ultimately it was always about faith and God is merciful and just, but that's like the feeling that was with it, right? But even now, even as you sin, like Jesus is, is ready and interceding. Right, as you said, in, in a sense, like it's, it, I know it's not like this, but if, if there was like somebody who's always watching and like oh, writing it down, and by the time it gets to God and they're like, here's how Sean sinned, Jesus is already like, duh, 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 duh. I already got that. I already got that. You are forgiven. You are forgiven to the uttermost, is what it says. These are. The, the blessings of Jesus. Jesus is a priest forever. He's a king in the line of Judah who reigns forever, but he's a kingly priest. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus does the very thing David knew needed to be done. The, the, the people of God needed a king who was a priest who would intercede for them so that the people of God could be in the presence of God under the blessing of God forever. And Jesus does that. And he does it finally. By bringing the same gift that Melchizedek does. How does it start? It says, and Melchizedek brought out the bread and the wine. How interesting is that? Melchizedek crashes the party with bread and wine. Look, it's not a good practice to crash a party, but if you're going to, like some really good bread and some wine will make it a lot better. But Melchizedek doesn't ask. Melchizedek knows exactly what is needed. He brings it. Likewise, Jesus enters into the narrative of our lives. He enters into the narrative of redemptive history. Uh, it's not out of the blue if you saw all the ways that God was working in the past. Uh, but it is out of the blue if you're living in first century Israel <laughs> and you hear about this carpenter's kid. who's now the Savior? It's out of the blue. And what does Jesus bring to us? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, you can't have bread without breaking it. And I'm going to be broken for you. And he takes the wine and he pours it out. He says, this is my blood. Jesus brings his body and his blood, the gift that Jesus gives that makes the blessings that he gives true, or his body and his blood. So here's, here's what you need to know as we bring this first. Like, these promises are yours. I think I said that last week and the week before and the week before. This is a book about a people who are trying to run away from God or feeling like they need to run away from the faith because they don't know if it's worth it. All of the blessings, all of the promises of God are yours in Jesus. They're yes and amen. They are sure. 
God has started a good work in you. He will finish that work. God has gone to prepare a place for you. Jesus has. He will come back and bring you with him to that place. Your sins are forgiven. These are everything you need you have in Christ Jesus. Already. Already. The, the second thing that you need to do with this, right? Like you, there's, there's the faith component. Then there's this action component. And we're going to do it in a second. Again. Jesus breaks that bread and he pours out that wine and he tells them, take and eat. Take and drink. And in that moment, they actually do have a choice. Now, in some ways they don't because it's the Passover feast and what else am I going to do? They don't have to eat and they don't have to drink. They don't have to eat. <laughs> what, what does Jesus say? Anyone who would follow me must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Like, that's really... A lot of people left because they were like, that's too much, Jesus. That's, that's gross. But that's the call. Partake of Jesus. Eat and drink. It is a sign of faith. It is a sign that my only hope and my only sustenance and my only life comes from you. Partake of Jesus. And then the third is kind of strange because I'm not calling you a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, although we are a royal priesthood. And it seems like priests in this line, this is what we do. Crash party. And bring the bread and wine. Is what I mean by that. Live your life in such a way that everywhere you go, and every story that you enter into, and every person that you engage with meets you standing ready with bread and wine, with Jesus, with brokenness, <coughs> with hope, with life with peace, with the gospel. Live lives that are a blessing. Live lives that proclaim bread has been broken and wine has been spilled for you. We're gospel people. We're bread and wine people. And the great thing about that is that means that we're party people. I wish that I had thought of that more before I said it and found a different way to say it. We are people who celebrate we are, we are people who party. Even in lament, we party. We're celebratory people. We can celebrate lament because we know it's not the end. We can celebrate in the midst of death. We can mourn death properly because we know death is not the end. We are people who bring bread and wine to every occasion. Right? In hopes that, that as we break it, the trail of crumbs would lead people back to the source of all bread, all life, and all forgiveness. Our Lord Jesus, we have a priest forever.
Let's pray. God, I do ask that we would recognize